Good afternoon, everyone. And happy Resurrection Day to all of us. Oh, thank you. Happy Resurrection Day to all of you. Um, our scripture today is going to be from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. And if you have your Bibles with you, please uh, turn there with me and read along. And the title of today's sermon, as you see up there, is Counting Our Losses by Counting What's Greater. Counting Our Losses by Counting What's Greater. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, and all God's people say, Amen. The origins of Easter are not well documented. However, the best that scholars can determine is that Easter originates from the Teutonic goddess, Estre, the fertility goddess of spring. Although there is very little written evidence, it seems that the story was handed, by, handed down by oral tradition. The Teutons are the Germanic peoples of Europe. And the story is that Estre, the goddess, discovered a bird with injured wings, and so the bird could not fly. And Estre, seeing this injured bird, took pity on the bird and turned the bird into a rabbit. The rabbit, however, um, was able to retain the ability to lay eggs. Therefore, in the springtime, the rabbit returns each year to lay colored eggs to show its gratitude to the goddess Estre. Um, the Easter traditions we know today were actually pagan traditions, which came with the immigrants uh, from Germany. Many German families told the story of Easter to their children while passing out gifts and treats. I tell you this story uh, because obviously what we have come to know as Easter was and is rooted in paganism and has nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, when the followers of Jesus first witnessed the resurrection of Christ, that day became known as what? The day of the Lord, or um, the Lord's Day, same thing, which was synonymous with Sunday because Jesus rose on Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus was such a world-changing event that the first followers of Jesus who were Jews 
stopped worshiping on Saturday, which was a Sabbath day, and began to worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. In fact, they stopped calling it Sunday altogether. They began to call it the Lord's Day because it was a day upon which Jesus was raised. The Apostle Paul was one of those early Christians who experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ in such a way that the course of his life was completely changed. And how did that life change? It was his conversion experience on the road to Damascus where he encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ that changed his life. Um, the way that the Apostle Paul treats uh, resurrection, the resurrection is interesting because Paul never goes into detail or tries to defend how the resurrection happened. He just asserts the fact that the resurrection is. It's a historical is. It just, it happened. He doesn't try to explain how it happened. It's a matter of fact. But more than how the resurrection happened, and more than the, that the resurrection is, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, more than any other part of the New Testament, is concerned about the implications of the resurrection as, or the resurrection of Jesus as it affects us personally as believers and how our lives are based on Christ's resurrection. So, oftentimes, um, these kinds of celebrations where we uh, celebrate the historical uh, event of the resurrection, uh, I feel, can be... Uh, somewhat dangerous. Dangerous in the sense that it becomes a historical event that we celebrate once a year. And we take a very formalized approach to the resurrection. So once a year, Easter comes around. Once a year, and we've taken all those symbols and all those um, events of, of the secular and pagan Easter, combined it with the resurrection day, and we celebrate it all together as one event. That is what's known as formalism. Formalism is religious, um, religious formalism, where you, 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 you practice the event not so much for the spiritual significance of it, but um, just for the event itself, the historical fact. And that historical fact doesn't really change us, does it? I mean, you can color Easter eggs, you can decorate them, you can give out candies, you can, you know, give out little plush animals of uh, bunnies, and children can be happy and laughing. But then, what happens on Monday? We go home, go to our workplace, and where's Easter? Oh, Easter was yesterday. The Apostle Paul will have none of that formalism. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so um, one way that I want to, actually I want to uh, show you something, something that's uh, totally beautiful. When I walked into this church, Steve, are you back there? There's a, a toggle switch, I think it's on the wall somewhere, that raises up the screen. There you go. I want to share something with you, okay? When it comes to worship, ancient people talked about worship in two ways, form and function. When I, uh, in, nine, in 2002, 
when I walked into this sanctuary for the first time, do you know what my response was? That was my response, walking into this, this sanctuary. Why? Because what you see around you is a building. But people of old days, in the old times, when people designed churches, they designed churches with a purpose. What I want you to do is look all the way from back there, look up. All the way from the back, look up. And then look over here. Have you guys ever noticed what's back here? Have you guys ever noticed what's up here? What do you see? Three arches first up here, right? Three arches. Three huge arches. Why? The arches signify sovereign power of God, upholding all things by his power. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, right? That's what it does. Now, if you look outside from the front of the building, if you look at this building, you'll see that this is an A-frame building. The purpose of the A-frame building is that it signifies like an arrow pointing up, just like Steve said, into the heavens. And at the very tip of that arrow is what? Is a cross. Because it's the cross that points us to God. When you look up here, all the way, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, inviting us to worship into his presence, what do you see? A scarlet arrow. With a cross backlighted. Why? Because Jesus is the way to the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. Why? Because it's the cross that draws us to God. Form and function. We can look at this place and we'll say, Pastor Bill, that's only a building. I mean, it's only wood and stucco and, and concrete. Well, yes, it is. But what separates this place, what separates this place is not just what it is, but what it's meant for. And that's the function right? Today, modern-day churches are not built like this. Today, modern-day churches are built to be multi-purpose rooms, multi-purpose meeting halls, but not churches. This is a sacred hall of worship. And everything about this building says this is sacred. That's why we won't come in here, lay our feet up on the furniture, prop ourselves up, lay down, and just lounge around. Why? Because everything about this place calls for holy reverence. Form and function. Very important. In the same way, when we come to celebrate holidays such as Easter, sometimes we get so caught up on the formalities that we lose out on the function of Easter, or Resurrection Day, okay? I, I personally, I won't call it Easter. I call it Resurrection Day. So, now getting back to uh, our sermon. You can drop the uh, screen if you'd like. 
this, uh, this passage in Philippians chapter 3, this passage in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul does three things. First of all, in verses, um, first thing that he does in verses 2 through 3 is he warns, gives a warning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, there is a warning. And the warning is, uh, he says, look out for those dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What is he warning against? He's warning against legalism. Why? There were a group of Jews going around, and it seems like they were going around and following Paul. And wherever the Apostle Paul would go, they would, uh, they would teach that, that Gentiles had to, had to ascribe to the Jewish laws. And so in order to be a true, God-fearing, Jesus-believing Gentile, you had to be circumcised. You had to uh, uh, obey the, uh, the food laws or the, cust uh, the religious laws, the ceremonial laws of the Jews. And the Apostle Paul says, watch out, because even though these people are religious, what they're lacking is true holiness and true righteousness. These are evildoers. There is a form of religion that the Bible says is evil. And we have to avoid that trap. So the Apostle Paul warns against legalism. In verses 4 through 6, in verses 4 through 6, he talks about what he was before Christ, what he was before Christ. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Look at that word confidence, because in the previous verse he says, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, right? No confidence. In other words, I'm not going to trust in the confidence of the flesh. I glory in Christ. So confidence in the flesh or is another way of saying uh, confidence and obedience to the law. I can be righteous by obeying the law. And the Apostle Paul says, no. No confidence in the flesh. That's evil. That's wicked. But that's set against glory in Christ Jesus. We either glory in Christ Jesus or we uh, uh, hold our confidence in the flesh, law. Okay? So it says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So if you want to base your faith on objective religious obedience, then guess what? I'm the standard here. Okay? I bring my A game and none of you guys are going to match. And that's what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, the, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, who in the world can say that? I'm an Israelite. Not only am I an Israelite, and the Israelite is like a, a, a very broad uh, paintbrush, right? There are a lot of Jews, a lot of Israelites. But then he says, not only an Israelite, but a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew. Now, that's very much more specific because not all Israelites spoke, uh, spoke Jewish. But when the Apostle Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's saying, I'm better because not only was I a Jew by culture and by race and by ethnicity, I'm something more than that. I can speak Hebrew. Hebrew is my natural language. It's my heart tongue. 
But more than that, a, uh, 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 of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? Anybody know who was the most famous Benjaminite in the history of Israel? Or the history of the Jews? Not Benjamin, but he was famous. But after that, who? King Saul. King Saul. The first king of Israel was the most famous Benjaminite. And he was heralded as a hero among the Jewish people. The Benjaminites were actually, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, in the, in the books of Moses, the Benjaminites were actually represented as the warriors of the tribe of Israel. And King Saul was chosen because not only was he big, not only was he strong, but he was good looking. And the people looked at him and they said, oh man, he's ideal, he must be the king. So he was the chosen king. Here's Saul, or Paul. He's a Jew. He speaks Hebrew as his native tongue. The, the Hebrew people at the time spoke Aramaic, not just Greek, and which he was from the city of Tarsus. He was a native of the city of Tarsus, uh, where it was a Jewish city, but those Jews, their main language was Greek. So they were Hellenistic Jews. Not only was um, he from Tarsus, but he was a, 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 a Roman citizen with a, with a Greek citizenship. Um, he spoke Greek, but more importantly, he spoke Aramaic as his native tongue. So the Hebrew people, uh, maybe not directly descended, we don't know, but we know that he was descended from the tribe, the same tribe that King Saul came from. And in fact, it seems like his parents um, honored Saul so much that they wanted to name their son after King Saul. So can you imagine the privilege of growing up in that kind of narrowed place? But he was not only just a Hebrew, not only was he a Benjaminite, but more than that, he was a Pharisee. See, now you go from the Jews, very broad, to a Hebrew, less broad, to a Benjaminite, very particular, specific, right? And now a Pharisee, even more specific. Very few people had the honor of being called a Pharisee. In fact, the Apostle Paul seems to have progressed so well in his Pharisaic beliefs that he was, even at a young age, he was considered uh, into, the, into the Pharisee um, circle. But he also seems to have won the respect of the Pharisees so that he was a high-ranking person among the Pharisees. And he was so great at what he was and what he did that he went around to the church in Jerusalem, not to the church, but to, to, the, uh, to the councils, and got letters of approval. He would go around and get letters of approval to persecute Christians who believed in Jesus. And what do you think they did? They gave him permission, in effect, to be a bounty hunter, to kill Christians or put them, have them put to death. Why? Because he was so zealous for his religion. He was so zealous for his, 
his history, his past. Why is this important for us to understand? Why is it so significant that the apostle wants us to recognize that this is who he was? The reason is this, because in the following passage, in the following verses, the apostle Paul not only uh, talks about what he was, but then he talks about what he is in Christ, what he is in Christ. Verse 7, well, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What's really interesting is when you read that passage, count all the places where he uses the word loss. How many times does he say, I have lost all things? I count everything as loss. How many things as loss, Paul? Everything as loss. What did you lose, Paul? Did he lose his Jewish heritage? Yes, he did. Did he lose his Hebrew heritage? Yes, he did. Did he lose his, his heritage as a Benjaminite and as a warrior for the tribe and for the, for the people of Israel? Yes, he did. Did he lose his position among the Jews, as, uh, among the highest class of Jews as a Pharisee? Yes, he did. Did he lose the love and loyalty of his family? Yes, he did. Did he lose his home? Yes, he did. What did he lose? Everything. Why? He's not content just to say, I've lost all things. Because Paul is not like so many of, uh, of us in the modern Christian church where we lose stuff, you know, or, or we, we may lose favor in this world and, and then we just begin to live this life with a pity party. Oh, this, man, I lost this. Oh, I lost that. Oh, life sucks. No. That's not the point of what he's saying. He doesn't want you to focus on what, the, what he's lost. He wants you to focus on what he has gained. What he has gained. His sake, I have lost the, uh, for his sake, whose sake? Christ. Why Christ? You know, it, it's easy for us to say, to think to ourselves that it's, a, it's, you know, he's being a very good moral person because he says, you know, for, for Jesus, I give up everything. Right? No. It's not, I gave up everything for Jesus. What he gave up was nothing compared to what he gained. And this is what he's trying to teach us today. There is a gain in this life, in this world, and in the world to come that cannot be compared to anything in this world. Nothing in this world. We live in this world, unfortunately, as so many Christians, we live in this world thinking that this world holds all the promise for us. And the Apostle Paul, his approach is this world holds nothing that I want. Think about it. Among Korean, uh, the Korean culture, I was having this uh, discussion with Matthew a little bit during lunch. I had this discussion with my son yesterday, and we had a really great discussion with my son about this. And I've had a discussion with another friend about this. 
how in the Korean culture, there's, there's such a problem. There's such a problem among the, uh, the Koreans of so many young people leaving the church. You know, they stay in the church through elementary or, you know, through children's ministry, to youth group. And then when they go off to college or, or you know, they graduate from college and they no longer stay in the church. And there's a mass exodus of young people who are leaving the church. And this is a problem, not just here at the Bridge Church. And it is a problem for the Bridge Church, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just a problem here, but it's a problem nationwide. And in fact, if you talk to people, if you talk to Christians around the world, you'll find that this is a problem all over the world. So obviously, it's not just a Korean problem. It's not just a Korean-American problem. It's not just an a, a Asian thing. You know, and, and so when, when I commented about this, uh, uh, my friend, um, an, uh, another pastor, he's, a, he's an Indonesian guy, and he pastors at a Chinese church. And he said, Bill, it's not a problem just for Koreans. It's a problem in the Chinese-American church as well. And so it's not just a, a Chinese problem. It's not a Chinese-American problem. It's not, it's, it's not about, you know, Chinese kids losing their, their heritage. It's not about Korean kids losing their Korean heritage. So what is the real issue? And here's my perspective on this. And my approach is this. As Christians, we try to teach our children to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and, uh, and, you know, to do all, all the good things, be a good kid, you know, and study hard. And if you study hard, God will bless you and you'll be successful, right? But successful in what way? Successful where? They go to their elementary schools and are those schools teaching them about Christ? Are those schools teaching them morality, what is right and wrong and how to make good uh, choices for their lives? When they go to high school, what are they being taught? Are they being taught what's right and wrong? Are they being taught uh, that, that they are made in the image of God and that God is the one who leads and guides and, and provides and protects? No. We send them off to schools that teach them there is no God. We send them off to schools that teach them there is no such thing as right and wrong. We send them off to schools that teach them success is what you make with your own hands. And you know what? If we as parents, Christian parents, do our job right, then they will be, our children will be very successful learning those lessons, won't they? So when they graduate from these high schools and go on to the best UCs, or hey, if they're really successful, they'll go on to an East Coast school, won't they? And they succeed. Scholarships, some get scholarships, academic scholarships, or whatever the you know, thing may be. You know, whether they go to Georgetown, or whether they go to, uh, to Yale, or Harvard, or Princeton, we would love our children to go to those places, right? Places where they're taught that there is no God, that the Bible is false, book of myths. Um, and so when kids are successful in their education and they go off to these places 
and we expect them to be successful with whatever these places are teaching. In fact, we'll do whatever it takes to cause them to be successful in those places, right? Put them to after-school tutoring, pay whatever money and whatever resources that we need to, to, to get in order to cause them to be successful. Why? Because we want them to graduate from these good universities and get good jobs and make good money. And if that's the case, then get, you know what? We just say, oh, glory to God. Praise God, we're so blessed. The Apostle Paul is saying, I count everything as rubbish. And that's a, that's a, a, a nice, euphemistic translation. The literal translation is, I count everything as dung. Poop. Dung. You want to be rich and successful, have a lot of money, good, stable job, have a, own, own nice cars and, and uh, have a, a big house or a beautiful house, you know, and, and all these things. And the Apostle Paul says, I count them rubbish. And we teach our children to seek after and to treasure rubbish. Let me um, read you something that J.I. Packer. Oh, my goodness, I love J.I. Packer. Such a good uh, theologian, um, Bible scholar. Uh, unfortunately, he went uh, home to be with the Lord about um, 10 years ago. But Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says this. When Paul says he counts the things of he lost rubbish or dung, as the KJV says, he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also that he does not live with them constantly on his mind. What normal person spends his time nostal nostalgically dreaming of manure? Yet, this in effect is what many of us do. It shows how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God. Manure. Ah, man, that was such pretty manure. Such good manure. Maybe if you're a farmer, <laughs> you might treasure manure. So he talks about all these things. Talks about his zeal. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Blameless. How many of us could say that if we were to look at the law, if we were to understand what the law truly taught, you could say, I obeyed this, 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 check it all off and go, yep, I'm a good person. And yet that's what the Apostle Paul says. You see, the argument from the Bible is not just that we can't obey these dictates. The argument from the Bible is that even if we could obey these things, we would never be good enough because we can never be holy enough, righteous enough. So why is Jesus so good then? Because we can never be good enough, so righteous, en righteous enough, the point is 
Jesus fulfilled this righteousness. Because Jesus fulfilled the righteousness, we are not required to. What we are required to do is place our faith in the one, that who, di- the one who did fulfill it. Paul is defending his gospel. And the gospel that comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his argument would be this. He says two things that he gains. He gains from the suffering of Christ. And he says on the sufferings of Christ, by he, the reason that he gains and the reason that the suffering of Christ is so much better is that in suffering, Paul is becoming like Christ. Second thing is that the, uh, to attain the resurrection from the dead. To attain the resurrection from the dead. Why is that so important? Because the attainment of the resurrection is not about our accomplishments, but it's about the accomplishment of Jesus. Every step and every word, what the Apostle Paul does is point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus has done it. Christ is greater than possessions in this world. Christ is greater than all the people and relationships in this world. Christ is greater than all the privilege and status that I can gain in this world. Christ is greater than everything. The all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. But knowing Christ is more than simply knowing about him. So many people, you know, it's so easy for us to come to church, hear a sermon, and think, oh, yeah, I've heard about Jesus from that pastor up there at the church, you know, and, and, and I, I, I know Jesus because I know about him. I've heard about him from Pastor Bill or Pastor Ed or Pastor somebody. But that's not what knowledge is. Knowing Jesus is so much more than that. Have you ever seen a baby? Babies know their deepest needs. Babies know their deepest need. You know what the need of every baby is? Need of every baby is number one, a sense of security. Babies need to know that they have a sense of security. The second thing that every baby needs is a need to belong. A sense of security and a need to belong. What is a sense of security? Have you ever seen a baby? You know, babies, when they're born, from the, from the very moment that they're born, you know, I remember when my son was born for the first time. Well, not, yeah, he was only born first time. But <laughs> when he was born, I remember doctor, you know, I, I, you know, I could see the head popping out and the doctor's yanking, pulling, you know, and he's got his little suction cup and he's pulling, you know, and the nurses are kind of, you know, and, um, but then, and then, and then out he comes. And the doctor, you know, pulls, uh, clips the umbilical cord and holds it with, with you know, the, the clip things, whatever, um, clamps. And then, and then he's, and then he gives me the scissors and he says, dad, dad, you want to cut the cord? I said, no, that's what I'm paying you for. You cut the cord. Um, so he cuts the cord and he ties it up and then, and then the nurse wraps the baby 
my son into a blanket, right? Little egg roll blanket. And then he hands me this big egg roll. And I'm holding this big egg roll in my arm. And he was no bigger than this right here. And I'm holding him in my arm. And he just... Comfortable, feeling secure. It's amazing. I find it absolutely amazing that when you have a baby, and when a baby is born, no matter how small, and no matter how old, you know, you can have a little child when they're toddlers. You know, a stranger approaches, and what does a toddler do? Runs to his or her father, right? Why? Because the father provides that sense of security that they need. No one else can. Well, of course, father and mother. Okay? They'll run to their parents. Why? Because they need that sense of security. Everybody needs that sense of security. As human beings, we all need that sense of security. What happens when a child grows up and doesn't receive that, that security that they need. I was, uh, I was watching an interest, interesting uh, TED Talk. Um, I don't know if you guys, if you guys know TED Talks. It's, it's kind of like a forum where, where, they invite, um, where they invite experts from certain fields. And this, uh, this one woman, she was actually an expert in the field of, um, of, uh, of foster uh, parenting. And, uh, and she was very uh, boisterous or, or very um, adamant that the foster parenting program was doing it all wrong. That uh, e even though they were given protection in the external sense, what they were not doing was they weren't giving uh, emotional and psychological protection to the children. Every child, if they don't receive that sense of security, what happens is they begin to act up they become defensive and they start fighting against the things that are threatening them. So the child acts up, and when the child acts up, they're taken out of that home, put into another home. And the, the, uh, the, the foster care program, you know, they think, well, you know, we've, we've put, her, put them in, in security. All you're addressing is the, is the external security, but you're not addressing the real need. And so that child gets bounced around from home to home to home to home. I personally had an experience uh, with a foster kid. I didn't, not my foster kid, but when I was, um, uh, when Pastor Steve, Steve Mick and I, we, we were doing ministry down in Mexico, we had this one kid who was in the foster care system. And he had been bounced around through various foster homes. Uh, in one home, um, he was uh, physically abused, terribly abused by his foster parents. In another home, he was in a home where, where the uh, foster parents were complete, complete drug addicts. Um, and then in another home, he was placed in a foster home where, the, where the, his foster father sexually abused him for many years. And then he was 17 years old, bounced around from foster home to foster home to foster home, 17 years old, and he has nowhere to go. And he was about to be released out of that foster home. You know what he did? He lied. 
he went to the, co- uh, the caseworker and he said, Pastor Steve said he would adopt me. Why? Because when he was with Steve, he felt secure. He felt safe. He felt loved and accepted. Something that he had never received from any of those previous homes. And of course, the caseworker contacts Steve and says, I, I understand that you want to you uh, adopt so-and-so. And Steve says, what? I never said that. You know? But he was about to be kicked out of the foster care system because he was too old. He had aged out of it. Where was he going to go? We don't know where he is to this day. Second thing is a sense of belonging. Every person not only needs a sense of security, but every person needs a sense of belonging. If we don't have that sense of belonging, we wander around, we wander through this world, problem after problem. And uh, the same expert who was doing the TED talk said, this is the problem. Because the foster care system is not concerned with a psychological security and a psychological sense of belonging and that a foster parent can't provide that. Only the family, the, the, the true relatives, the true parents, the biological family. So um, there was uh, this case of this one girl who had been bounced around. I think it was like um, uh, in her 13 years, she had uh, been in and out of like uh, almost 20, 25 homes. And then she acted out, acted out, you know, and then, um, and then there was a, an incident um, where um, she was, where it was a school event, and it was an open house when all the parents would come and, uh, and see their children's work, and they would, oh, this is my son, this is my daughter. Wow, I'm so proud of you. Look what you did. And she had nobody. You know what she did? That night, she went home, cut her wrists, cut her face, and did terrible things to herself. Because she had been bounced around. You know, people tried to give her a, a good place to live, but it wasn't the right place. Why? Because even though they could provide a home, even though they could provide meals, even though they could provide clothes and do all these things, they could not provide the real longing of the heart. And this is a truth that every single one of us needs. We need to belong. We need to know that there's somebody out there who says, I want you, you're mine, you belong to me. And so what this, this lady and her organization, what they did was, was they went and they researched her, took her DNA test and did DNA matches and found her biological family. And it turned out that this biological family had been searching for this little girl ever since she was put in the foster care system. But they thought that because she was in the foster care, they uh, falsely assumed that she had been adopted and that she had been given a new name because they just couldn't get a hold of her. They were looking for her. They wanted her. They wanted to have her in their home and in and their family. And then one day the caseworker, the lady, went up, went to this little girl and told her, we found your family. And they want you. And they've been looking for you. And they want you to come live with them. 
and the girl was ecstatic. Overnight, her demeanor changed. Overnight, everything about her changed. And, and one of the last things that she said, I think, was uh, to her caseworker is, you don't have to worry about me anymore. I know where I belong. You can go help somebody else who needs a family. It's amazing. When we don't have a place to belong or a person to belong to, what happens is so many of us, we wander through life aimlessly, fighting against the very society and the, and, and the things that happen in this world. And that is why, and she said, that's why we have so many problems with drugs, so much problem with violence. That's why we have so many criminals in the prisons. Because people just don't understand the deepest need for belonging. This is so important for us to understand. Why? Knowledge, knowledge of Jesus it's not just about knowing him. Knowing Jesus means that we have a God in Christ who through his resurrection not only gives us eternal life in heaven in the future, but the moment that we come to accept and to believe that Jesus is our Savior, the moment that we come to place our faith in Jesus, what happens is then our life is changed. We are no longer strangers, outcasts, but we belong to him. As 1 Peter says, that God's own people, our belonging is in Christ. Eternal life begins from day one of our first faith in Jesus. Not just when we die and go to heaven, Heaven, our death and uh, consequent passing into heaven is a continuation of the eternal life that we gain when we believe in Jesus. Everything about our lives becomes new the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We start thinking in a different way. We start living for him. Our whole life, our purpose in life becomes different. Why? Because we know we are secure in him. Because we know that we belong in him, that we're wanted by him. So Paul, according to uh, the dictionary of Paul and his letters, he says, knowledge of Christ and the power of his resurrection with participation in his sufferings point to the importance of Christ's resurrection for an ethical lifestyle which endures trial. The aim of such conduct is the attainment of the resurrection. You see, every step, every time we endure a trial and every time we uh, uh, face a difficulty in our faith, what it does is it brings us one day closer to that inevitable eternal resurrection. But we have been raised to a new life. And that new life is today, and that new life is tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. That new life is into eternity. That's what Jesus has given us. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. The question is this then. When we leave these doors, 
Will we walk in the newness of that life? Will we walk in the life of the resurrection? Or will we walk in the old life? The life that is manure. Which do we choose? How do we live? Resurrection day is not bunnies, colored eggs, candy, stuffed animals. Resurrection day is Jesus Christ, knowing him and the power of his resurrection. When I wake up in the morning, I will walk in the power of that resurrection. When I take my step out those doors, I will walk in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. So I hope that if any of you are sitting here today and thinking, Bill, you don't know the kind of struggles that I have. You don't know how hard I've tried and tried and tried to give up my life of sin to follow Jesus. And I have to admit to you that it is so hard. And some may be sitting here even thinking, oh, I'm on the verge of giving up. Well, isn't it beautiful to know that Christ has never given up on us? Christ would never will give up on us. Why? Because it is his resurrection that has secured our new life. The life that we live today, the life that we live tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today, at this moment, we would be like the Apostle Paul and count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. And that we may know him and know the power of his resurrection and that we would attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, it is our desire and our prayer to you today that as we learn this truth, it would not just us remain here in this place, in this hall. But Father, that it would motivate, drive, and just uh, continue to fuel our desire to live our lives for your name and for your glory. So we thank you and praise you for all that you do in us and for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.